Welcome to the Design Better podcast. I'm Aaron Walter. I'm Eli Woolery. If you're new to the podcast, let me give you a little context. Each episode, we bring you conversations with some of the brightest minds in product design. And it's all brought to you by Envision, the digital product design platform powering the world's best user experiences. Each season of our podcast has a theme. Way back in our first season, we spoke about product-driven companies, companies that are exploring human-centered design and how strong collaboration between product, design, and engineering helps make great products. And in season two, we looked at creating products at scale because we see so many design teams growing. In that season, we explored the foundational operations, design systems, and leadership needed to scale a design team. Our most recent season is all about the connected workflow. How can designers work more effectively and efficiently with their engineering and product counterparts? We speak with our guests about how building key partnerships throughout an organization can help you ship better products faster. And now that we've wrapped season three, we want to take a little bit of time to revisit some of the highlights of what we learned along the way. So Eli, which episodes stood out the most for you? Yeah, so obviously we had a ton of great guests that we spoke to, but one of the ones that really stood out, and, and not only from this interview, but from speaking to her for the design genome project we worked on, was Abigail Hart Gray, who's now at Google. Abigail's approach to measuring design and how she picked a project to start with is really fascinating. Once I have a good bit of information, after I feel like I kind of understand the landscape, what I like to do is pick something which has no value to the company currently, little or no value, and choose that to do a rapid kind of workshop sprint process to rebuild it, oftentimes with no new functionality, because if you're going to do that, you may not really get to add any new exciting features if you want to get it out quick, but to turn it around and show how it can be something of value to the company. Yeah, the thing that stands out to me about the way that Abigail works and thinks about her work is that we've talked to so many design leaders over these past three seasons, and often there's not enough thinking about the quantitative aspect of design. And Abigail, when she starts a project, she always snaps a baseline. This is how we're performing right now. And she, you know, th these, these are her words. She thinks of herself as a, a data nerd, that she likes to look at the analytics of everything. So she's always thinking about her work, her team's work in a quantitative manner. Yeah, absolutely. And I think that has really paid off through the arc of her career because, for instance, when she spoke to us about her work at Northwestern Mutual, she was able to really early on in her role there demonstrate a huge return on an investment in design. And she was able to grow her team from seven to 70 people over the course of two years, I believe. One other thing that was fascinating to me about Abigail's approach is that when she is thinking about KPIs, how she and her team are going to measure their work, she intentionally goes to engineering partners and looks for what are the most important things for them? What are their KPIs? And she looks for an intersection between the two and that's just a great way to build instant partnership. Aaron, who have we talked to this season that really stood out to you? Like you, I learned a lot from everybody. One that floats to the top 
for me is, is the conversation that we had with Benjamin Evans over at Airbnb, who leads inclusive design work over there. And there's a phrase that he said that really just rings in my ears still today. He said, who are we not including in our process? And what I like about that is it's a statement that builds mindfulness about who we're not including in our work when we think about our customer base and who we're designing for. That can draw our attention to accessibility. It can draw our attention to different demographics. Their needs are not represented in the work that we're doing. But it also ties back to this theme of the connected workflow. Who are we not including in this process in our company, our, our colleagues? Who should be in this conversation here. Absolutely. And it's a, he talks about turning the empathy that we have as designers that we can use towards our customers and to bringing in a more diverse set of customers. He talks about turning that towards our teams, towards our interdisciplinary teams, where we might not traditionally focus that much of our design effort, but it's really an opportunity for, for empathy with engineers, product managers, understand what challenges them, and what really excites them about the work that they do. Inclusive design is really the process of bringing those who are outside or the other or those whose experience is like the extreme. It's about bringing those groups into the core of your creation and the way that you create, about involving people, including them in the process. Then it stands that like inclusive design sets a strong framework for how you can collaborate with people from different disciplines, with your engineers, with your product managers, because like the very baseline for so much of this is you know, what we often say to be empathy. And so just by embracing these ideas and these principles of let's focus on the needs of people who are not like me, you become better in business, you become better as a designer, you become better in life, really. Totally agree that this is something that designers love to claim ownership of, is that we are empathetic, we understand the customer story. And isn't it ironic that so often we are not as empathetic as we could be towards our colleagues, how they think, what their value system is, what they need to be successful. That's really key to creating effective partnerships inside of a company. Yeah, and obviously this idea of inclusivity makes a lot of sense morally, and it should be a moral imperative for all companies, but also makes business sense because mm -hmm. by being inclusive, you're increasing or widening your, your market share and bringing in new customers that you may not have had before. So it makes sense on, on a both moral and, and business grounds. So Eli, continuing our tennis match of takeaways here, what other episodes floated to the top for you? Well, it's hard to pass up Brad Frost and Dan Maul. <laughs> they're just yeah. both, well, A, they're characters and they're good storytellers, but it was... Yeah. Uh, I think one of those rare opportunities to have two people on a podcast, which might tend to be awkward, but in this case, they're just so great at bouncing ideas off each other, and they obviously work together so well. So kind of in that vein, they spoke about this idea of hot potatoing a project. So traditionally in design process, you might hand off comps to development team to implement, but the idea that they brought up was maybe that's a little bit broken. Maybe you should hand off a smaller chunk of work and get their input and get some work done on the development side, on even on the copy editing side, bring in more roles early to the process, and then pass the project back and forth in this kind of hot potato manner, which I thought was pretty, pretty cool. One metaphor that we've come up with is certainly not a solid one, is the metaphor of hot potato, right? Hot potato is a handoff from one person to the other, 
but it frequently goes back and forth, right? It's like you for a little bit, and then me for a little bit, then you for a little bit, then me for a little bit. I found that that is a useful process for a lot of teams, is not that handoff goes one direction and it never goes back, but it's mm. like, you know, here's a little bit of design, goes to the developer, build that thing out. Back to design, though, right? That's the part where it breaks a little bit, right? The part where we're not used to. Back to design, let's look at that and see how it's going. If it doesn't work, all right, maybe we'll modify it, or maybe we'll ship it, or maybe we'll build on top of it, or maybe we'll, we'll, we'll do something else to it. But so this idea of like kind of going back and forth between design and development and design and development, and that applies for all of the disciplines too. You could get copy in there, you get UX in there, you can get QA in there, you back end in there. You know? So all of them sort of like hot potatoing between each other. It's such a brilliant approach and a different way of working because it puts designers and engineers on equal footing. It sets them up as peers it also translates so nicely to an agile cross-functional team situation where there's this trend moving away from sequential, linear, waterfall processes of designer makes a thing, engineer builds the thing. But what Brad and Dan are talking about is quickly passing that thing back and forth to refine. And it brings out the skills, the superpowers of both designers and engineers. And I think it brings some humility to the workflow. Absolutely. And both Brad and Dan are really deep experts in design systems. Brad wrote the seminal book, Atomic Design, on design systems. And mm -hmm. Dan co-founded Super Friendly, which the focus of their work at this point is helping companies implement design systems. And they had this great quote, too, about how design systems can be a middle ground for designers and developers. Done correctly, you end up with a, a set of, of reusable components that sort of contain all of these perspectives, and then those puzzle pieces get taken and plugged into real applications to build new software that then embody all of those best practices. So like that's it's great because you get this watering hole where designers come together to share the best of their knowledge with the developers who are sharing the best of their knowledge. It all sort of meets in the middle. Another interview that was great was with Lori Kaplan, and she's at Atlassian. And when we did our design genome report on Atlassian, we spoke with the head of design there, Jurgen Spangl, and he had this great concept of designing across the seams. And that's the idea that the design team is in a unique position to design across an entire customer journey. We asked Lori to dig into that. And here's how she sees designing across the seams at Atlassian. I think it is a superpower or a potential superpower of all design teams is to design across the seams. And I think that is one of the key roles that we play as designers is to bring that customer view and the broad, complete customer journey into our work. I think it's easy to lose sight of it as you get deep into delivering on your personal mandate or your team mandate, whatever that is. So I think some of the playbook plays help us up level, like sparring. We have to spar across teams. And as we do that, we share. And that's an opportunity for designers to up level and say, wait, how does that experience fit into this customer journey? We also use journey maps and put assets up on walls which is kind of difficult given that we're distributed around the world, but we've adopted tools like Envision, of course, 
mural, uh, gallery to share our work asynchronously so that we can stay in touch with what's happening across all the teams. And then we can, as design teams or design leaders, look and see where the gaps, where things falling apart. You know, another thing that was fascinating, uh, what we learned from Lori was how Atlassian has built a playbook for team collaboration. And it's something that they continue to iterate on and distribute. And the reason why that was so interesting to me is that it's a recurring theme that we've seen with a lot of companies who are trying to build a more mature design practice and trying to build better partnerships with engineers and other folks and trying to design across time and space where you've got multiple locations for a company and you want to get everyone moving together. So to create that connected workflow, having a codified design process, methodology, way of thinking about how we work, documenting that, distributing that, and then continuing to iterate on that and making that process of codifying the design practice inclusive, it's so powerful. And I think that that's something that Atlassian is doing so well, but we just don't see in a lot of other companies. Absolutely. And some of their specific processes that I thought were interesting were things like sparring, Mm -hmm. where they have teams get together, and that's not just the design team, but developers and product managers come in, and they basically just kind of informally argue about, is this the right design approach to take? And that gives the designers a chance to say, this is how this fits into the customer journey, but it also gives engineers a chance to say very early on, you know, maybe commenting on kind of technical constraints or mm-hmm. you know, even ideas that may be more in the realm of a kind of a divergent thinking that will give developers chance to participate in that part of the process. Yeah, and that process is, again, very different than from what we see at a lot of other companies where there's a lot of just heads-down work with headphones on, looking at a screen. There's not a lot of debate. And, you know, Eli, I wonder, since you teach at Stanford, you teach the Capstone product design class, how you see sparring what Atlassian is doing. How is that similar to what you do with your students at Stanford? Well, I think it's really... You know, very similar in a lot of ways because the class I teach is very project-based, but we also have these industry coaches come in. And so they actually, on a weekly basis, get a chance to interact with coaches who can come in with the kind of maybe the same types of questions an engineer or product manager might come in with and just pose questions. They're not providing solutions, but they're kind of posing the types of questions that somebody with mm-hmm. deep expertise might be able to influence the way that a product is designed and made. So yeah, I think this idea of sort of an, an interdisciplinary approach from very early in the design process really helps get projects moving in the right trajectory. So Eli, you mentioned that the conversation that we had with Diego Rodriguez, which speaking of Stanford, took place at the D School. That one was one that you took away a lot from. What stood out for you there? Yeah, so Diego's got this really interesting blend of business expertise and design expertise and also an educational background. And he had a really elegant way of thinking about how design thinking helps bring diversity of perspectives to the design process. And we've got a great little clip here that illustrates that. What you see happening via design thinking, and this echoes into my work at Intuit now, is this idea that, hey, there are people who can be an integral part of the design process who didn't go to a formal design school, but they could be an expert in business or 
in systems design, or you know, they could be a computer scientist, but so long as they understand the design process and are human-centered, they can contribute in a way that adds a lot of diversity to the process and gets you really to a better overall result. And so the way we think about the culture is those two together, right? Customer-driven innovation helps you focus on what to solve, and design for delight helps you have a process for making those come together. So for me, as this kind of hybrid business designer person, as you said, it's been fantastic because everyone there accepts the idea that I was talking about earlier is that good business is happening by design. It's just part of the culture, right? But it's taken a lot of work by my predecessors to make that a reality in the culture. What stood out for me in that conversation with Diego is just how fluent he is at talking about design, design principles, design methodology, design as a craft, but also business as a craft and business as a methodology as well. So in many respects, he's bilingual in a company that's very design focused historically, but he also is able to speak the language of business and that's helped him in his career, that's helped his team produce better work. That is definitely a recurring theme that we heard this season on the podcast and more broadly as we visit companies and attend conferences and so forth. We just hear this as a common theme that designers really need to be able to understand the language of the business. Yeah, I love his quote that good business happens by design. Eli, the conversation with Josh Ulm was equally interesting, particularly how he approaches design operations, which in the past, let's say two and a half years, design operations has become a recurring theme that we see a lot. And that's really a function of the fact that design teams have grown. So about three years ago, when we started out designbetter.com and the Design Better podcast, Correct me if I'm wrong, but roughly 20 to 50 people was kind of a typical size of a team. And now it's not uncommon for us to see like 120, 150 or more person team, even at a financial institution or an insurance company, places where you wouldn't think that they'd have such big design organizations. The team internally, its process or its model for a kickoff is gonna be very different than an external agency that's gonna kick something off. And they often come in and will say, okay, I've already figured out what this thing is. Let's spend this kickoff figuring out how, not why. And I think that is kind of the fundamental problem internally, is that oftentimes the internal processes are kicked off with the how question, not the why question. If you're internal and you're kicking it off, I think now the challenge is not who is the right person, because you probably have the right person or knew, know who that person is, but how do I get them to ask the right question in the end? Which is, how do I get them to not think about how, but to think about why? Yeah, Josh is great. And I think one of the other things I really like about him is he has this attitude, and he actually said it explicitly, that it's our job to call BS when we feel it's warranted on data. And we rely so heavily on data these days for good reason to designing products. But sometimes as designers, we have unique insights into what makes a product unique and what makes a experience special. And so just being able to stand your ground and call out when you think that the data is lying, because just like statistics, data can lie. And as a designer, you need to 
hold on to that gut instinct where, where things might go wrong in a product otherwise. I think design does have a seat to the table. They just need to stop just being designers or stop only designing screens and start representing the customer and being that voice of the customer using, at the very least, if they're not seen as the authority for being the voice of the customer at the company, at least representing the customer to the extent that they do have ownership over that space and bringing that to the table. Yeah, I mean, when things are at their best, it's when qualitative findings and quantitative findings come together to help shape our perception of the things that we're making and how that's resonating or not with our customers. And if we only look at it in a single dimension, it really puts us at a disadvantage because quantitative thinking, the data, will only tell us what the behavior is. It doesn't tell us what's motivating people and why they're taking these actions. Qualitative research is what will tell us what is motivating people, help us understand that behavior more accurately. So to your point and to Josh's broader point, calling BS on data, it's not to say that data isn't valid, it's to say that data is not gospel. There's more to the story. And sometimes understanding the customer and their needs, it trumps a number. The final thing that I wanted to bring up here about season three that really stood out for me, I loved the conversation that we had with Julie Zhu. So if you haven't checked out Julie Zhu's new book, The Making of a Manager, I highly recommend it. It's a great read. And the reason why it's so great is not only because it's full of practical advice that you can read it this weekend and put it into action next Monday. It's also that all of these stories, there's, a, there's an inherent vulnerability about it, which is kind of amazing because of Julie, just who she is. She's a very humble person. And there's a story that she shared with us that I think is very telling. That's something that everyone can walk away with. It's a story of humility about how she used to run a meeting at Facebook and she's been in, was in charge of that for quite some time. And she had to be out for an extended maternity leave. And that meant she had to pass the reins over to somebody else. And what she discovered when she came back was pretty surprising and humbling, but it also helped her learn a great deal. To me, this is the difference between management and leadership. Management is a job, it's a role. It's like being a teacher or a police officer or a heart surgeon. You know, there's various responsibilities that come with that role. It can be given to you and it can be taken away. Whereas leadership is a quality that you have to earn. But many, many people can be leaders and you don't need to be a manager in order to be a leader, in order to, through your actions or your words or through your vision, inspire a group of other people around you towards a common cause or to rally around a particular initiative. I find that I often do have to help mentor individual contributors on the art of delegation because that is a skill you need if you want to lead a group of people, again, regardless of whether you are a manager or an individual contributor. At a certain point, you know, if you're, you know, the most brilliant designer, you, you still can't be moving every pixel yourself, again, if you want to be able to oversee a, a larger swath of the product, right? And so you have to get comfortable working through other people. 
Yeah, I really love that story too. And the other thing that resonated with me for Julie was just this idea of how writing has helped her in her career and helped her become a better manager. Mm. She's had a habit for a long time of writing, she says, even since she was in third grade, <laughs> she's been journaling. But it wasn't until she became a manager that she started to really understand how it could help her in her role. And that she had been hired as a manager because basically she was very agreeable. But she knew that to become an even better manager, she needed to be able to organize the way she thought and critiqued other people's work. And that by writing about it, it made her much stronger in that way. And it was also really motivating. A lot of people responded well to her writing. So it really helped her as she grew in her career. Writing is one of the most therapeutic and helpful ways of, for me to organize my own thinking. So I'm that kid that was journaling you know, every day in third grade. I'm that person who in high school was trying to write down all of my goals and what I really cared about when it came to a college in order to you know, help me decide you know, where I wanted to apply and, and where I ultimately wanted to go. So I've had this you know, history and habit of using writing as a tool for myself to solve problems. I said, one of the reasons my manager chose me to be the next manager was like, you get along with everyone. And I said that I'm the person who would rather hear what everyone else has to say about their design opinion before giving them my own. Well, I wanted to work on that because I knew that, you know, this was ultimately going to be a barrier and that if I couldn't figure out how to get my voice out there or even to find, you know, what it is that I stood for, that was going to, you know, hold me back. The other thing that was motivating was a lot of people responded really well to my writing. And again, this wasn't the goal that I set out to try and do when I started, but it was it was very heartwarming to hear that some of the things I was struggling with were universal, that lots of people felt that way. And people in different contexts, in different industries, a completely different team environment. And so that was also you know, something that has continued to inspire me to write and to start my mailing list with the Q&A answers and to you know, ultimately write this book. So those are some of the high level things that we learned from season three. Hopefully you have a few takeaways as well. If there are any episodes you missed, perhaps this will encourage you to go back and take a look at the back catalog. And season one and season two, if you didn't get a chance to listen to those, they're full of insights. So we hope you'll check it out. And season four is right around the corner. Eli and I have been hard at work recording episodes for the coming season. We've had fascinating conversations with people like Steve Rader at NASA, who's led innovation and collaboration over there. We learned a lot about running big teams and shaping the vision for large projects, getting people to move in the same direction. We also spoke to folks like Joanna Pena Bickley, who's at Amazon, leading design for Internet of Things. and. Joanna's just had this amazing leadership career and had some really interesting origin story too. So she was just a really intriguing person to speak with. Also in season four, look for episodes with Naveen Gavini, head of design at Pinterest, who has an engineering background, fascinating story, and Natalia Shelburne from the New York Times. She leads an all-female engineering team and is doing some great work there too. We're excited to bring you season four soon, so stay tuned. In the meantime, look for bonus episodes that we're releasing. We just released an episode with Gina Ann, formerly of Salesforce, who helped create 
the Lightning design system over there. And she's also the creator of Design Tokens, if you're familiar with design systems and the inner workings of that. And she founded the Clarity Conference. So lots of conversations about design systems and there's more to come. We hope you've enjoyed season three and the best way to be informed about season four is to simply subscribe wherever you listen to podcasts.